1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Ann Phillips. Dr. Ann Phillips is an uh, emeritus professor of political science at the London School of Economics. She previously directed the LSE Gender Institute. She's a very well published author. Her books include Engendering Democracy, The Politics of Presence which equalities matter, multiculturalism with our culture, our body, whose property, and the politics of the human. And today he's here to talk to us about a great book she published with the Princeton University Press in 2021 called Unconditional Equals. And welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. We're very glad to be here. Uh, before we start the interview, can you briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your field of expertise and more importantly, why you decided to write this book?
0: Well, my, my generally I'm I'm a political theorist. Um, I'm probably best known as a feminist political theorist, but um I, my my understanding of feminism has always involved thinking about gender inequalities in relation to wider inequalities. So unconditional equals well, continues very much in that vein. Um and I think the uh I think what particularly sparked unconditional equals which I kind of think of as a kind of almost like a, a, a summation of many of my thoughts about equality and inequality over many years and maybe one always thinks that of one's most recent book but what, what I mainly wanted to do in unconditional equals was was to take on uh, to challenge what the happy story that we sometimes tell ourselves about the progress of equality I mean not the progress of materially equality, because I think we're all well aware that we live in a world where material inequalities are, if anything, growing daily and are an enormous problem. But I think we there's still a kind of comforting story that we tend to tell ourselves. And when I say we, we, I'm thinking particularly uh, those in the West who tend to claim equality as a Western value and. I uh, have very much this kind of sense that um, there is that we've kind of arrived at a point where we in the West now uh, agree that all uh, all individuals are in some important sense of fundamentally the same value. This is evidenced by the fact that in democracies we give all adults the equal right to vote. So there's this kind of complacency about where we've got to in the progress of equality. And yet we look around the world, we look around our own immediate environment, and it's so evident that we do not believe that all individuals are of equal value. You know, one thinks of the class inequalities, the racial inequalities, the gender inequalities in Europe, major problem of Islamophobia, anti-immigrant feeling. All of these things uh really give a lie to the idea that we that we live in a world where you know, we now have reached the shared assumption that we're all of sort of fundamentally uh, equal significance. What what I wanted to ask in the book, or to explore in the book, is: is there something about the dominant ideas of equality that we currently work with that are contributing to this complacency? That are kind of contributing to this kind of easy, taken for granted assumption that somehow we have arrived at this condition of uh believing people equals against all the evidence. And the the argument that that in essence I make is that um we're operating with a conception of equality that is conditional and that we need to move
1: to a fully unconditional understanding of equality. And and that's the title of the book, Unconditional Equals. Uh, and yeah, you have a number of uh you you raise a number of great points in the book. We'll get to them and also those conditions based on which these this complacency is based, that's it. But before that, can you talk about your uh you talk about in the book about your personal experience as well, how you evolved in your understanding of equality. And then you uh bring up this term uh, uh, which I guess was used by some I mean was was in, was was invented by some other theorists, I, I'm not sure, the great leveling and then you talk about how why income gap inequality has actually increased in the US and also across the world since 1970s so can you tell us a little about your own personal experience your how you reconsider your ideas of uh equality and or inequality and then talk about why we've had this uh, this this widening gap in in inequality since 1970s yeah i won't be able to explain all of that but but I think, I think it's part of what
0: contributed to the complacency that I'm talking about is that the 20th century, for much of the 20th century, particularly in the richer countries of the world, there was a, uh, there was a kind of move towards lesser material inequality. There are all kinds of contributors to that. Uh, the two world wars were important contributors. I mean, lots of people got very rich during the World Wars, particularly armaments producers, but that wars destroy wealth. Uh, they, uh, they kind of, they eliminated some of the wealth. Also, of course, when, when, when our countries are fighting wars and they're relying on their population, uh, and in of course, of the first World War, actually uh, sending millions of their uh, uh, citizens to uh, to die, there's a kind of increasing impetus on governments to actually begin to address the needs and the concerns of the uh, the broader mass of their citizens. So there's a number of kind of elements that, that, that build into it. People also talk about how in the United States, uh, there was uh, a lessening of population growth, partly lessening immigration through the 20th century, which meant that uh, skilled workers were able to take advantage of this, and unionize, and bid for higher wages. So lots of different elements go into it. But basically, much of the the first half of the 20th century was a period in which a lot of governments were introducing taxations on the wealthy and on property. They were beginning the formation of, of what we we know as the welfare state. Uh, you were getting a reduction in the discrepancy between the highest income and the lowest income, but also, I think very significantly, a reduction in the uh, differential between unskilled and skilled workers. So, the the way in which it's related to the complacency is that, I mean, I, I was born in 1950. I grew up in this period, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, in which one still had a sense of things were getting better, right? Things were moving. I mean, people very often nowadays say that people of my generation, and indeed the generation after me, uh, could assume that we would have a better life materially than our parents had had, and that was certainly true for me. But for our own children, the chances are now that our own children may have a lesser, lesser good life than we have uh, in terms of the material uh, possibilities. So. The kind of basically, particularly in the um annual American countries, so the United States, uh, the United Kingdom, also Australia and New Zealand, the English speaking countries, the 70s was the kind of the point at which that turned around, and you got the rise of what people describe as neoliberalism, uh, the deregulation, the kind of you know, incomes, the decline in trade union uh, power, um, all of this. Uh, moving into a situation where the, the differentials uh, between um, the, the poorest section of the community and the richest section hugely, hugely uh, extending themselves, and at this point we begin to see, and this has been written about, of course, by a lot of economic historians, that what looked like a trend towards lessening. The uh, income gap and increasing material equality actually was a blip. It was an unusual, unusual moment uh, in which there was that process. And we're now perhaps back to the norm. Um, So that's been, um, I mean, I think like many of my generation, without realizing it, I was kind of subconsciously uh, influenced by that experience of the great leveling uh, into buying into, much more than I should have done, this idea that we were on, in a sense, a progressive development towards greater equality. and I have a much more pessimistic view of that now, but my pessimism isn't just about the opening up of the material inequalities, because if you have those enormous material inequalities, they almost always coincide with huge inequalities in terms of whether you do actually think that other people are of but equal value or words.
1: Uh, that's a very interesting point you brought up. I am originally from Iran myself and I moved to New Zealand yeah. about uh, 11 years ago to do my PhD and I had a conception that, oh, I had this idea that more or less the, these these equalities don't really exist in Western societies. But there were several lectures that I went to, several resources that were introducing those lectures and and, and I, I was really shocked. I was really shocked when I when the, when when I realized that, for example, child poverty few years ago was an issue in New Zealand. I'm am st- sure it still is, but that's something we rarely hear about. And there is a lot of uh, hype in the media about you know with a lot of I don't know if they're really intellectuals, or pseudo intellectuals, best-selling authors who have university uh, seats as well who write about the. Prog, the angels of progress. I don't remember the title of the book, and you've never been more equal. But the way they look at the statistics is very, very selective to to paint this a story of continual progress. Um and there have been a lot of, let's say, interventions. There have been a lot of institutions to address inequality, but you believe that they there we still there isn't any sustained, let's say, effort on the side on the part of us to address these inequalities that are based on hierarchies, such as race, gender, birthplace, is that right?
0: Well, it's not that there haven't been initiatives. I mean, honestly, in uh, in in many countries, including my own um, Britain, um, there's been you know decades of legislation uh, against discrimination on the grounds of sex, against discrimination on the grounds of race, against discrimination on the grounds of religion. Um, so it's not that there haven't been initiatives, or, or not just uh, the kind of anti-discrimination initiatives, but also uh, movements towards uh, equal pay uh, for women and men. So it's not that there haven't been initiatives. That what what strikes me is how 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 difficult it seems to be to move people to the point in which we really do think of others as our equals. Right? That we kind of that we think that. You know, this kind of this notion that we have that somehow we've arrived at this nirvana where uh, we already uh, inhabit this world, where this is the norm, is so far from the reality. Now, I don't have a kind of I don't have an explanation of why it is. why it is that kind of I don't know, there's such a persistence of misogyny or racism or homophobia or all of the kind of ways in which people distance themselves and mark themselves out as superior to others. I don't have a kind of explanation. I'm not a historian, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a psychologist. You probably need those to be explanation. But what I what I think I can contribute to this, and I hope I have contributed in the book, is a kind of a critical uh argument about the particular ways in which we're using the notion of equality, which is which is contributing to this, which is making this kind of persistence of ideas of superiority and inferiority uh, a continual part of uh, the ways
1: in which we think. And uh, you're also critical of the idea of meritocracy. It sounds all great, meritocracy, yeah. it's equality based on merit, but why do you think and how has it damaged the idea of equality?
0: It's. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that the the very term meritocracy, which was uh, coined by uh, 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 English uh, uh, writer, Michael Young, in uh, a book in 1958 called The Rise of Meritocracy, it was coined as a critique, as a satire, and it was a satire of what happens to a society when it comes to uh, measure people, uh, in his argument, purely by their... Success in a narrow set of exams and qualifications, and uh, two parts of his argument, which I think still ring true. One is that uh, this kind of moves towards a rather single scale of merit, which simply doesn't recognise the kind of huge range of qualities and capacities uh, that that people have within our society. So. For example, as, as feminists endlessly point out, we do not value the capacities that involve caring for others. You know that this this hugely important human capacity to provide efficient but also sensitive care uh, to those who are sick, to those who are dying, to those who are young. Um, we don't value that. Um, meritocracy narrows the range of things that we value. First of all, but secondly, it's a kind of it's it's a kind of basically it celebrates a kind of society in which we compete maybe through qualifications through education uh, for the good positions within society in a way that encourages us to forget about the probably half society that doesn't succeed in this competition but also encourages those who have succeeded to really think that they are better people not just that they are better. At teaching, better surgeons, or you know, better at whatever, you know, particular position they have qualified themselves for. But the meritocracy, the whole language in meritocracy, encourages us to think that those who got succeeded in the in the competition for the best positions uh, are indeed better people. So I I think I mean my argument is not that we shouldn't want um, well qualified people for the jobs that they do. I mean, we want surgeons to be highly skilled, we want those who teach to be good at teaching, we want those who care to be good at caring. All of these things, this is not what what I think is the problem. The problem is when we, uh, when we think of a society as a meritocracy, we are buying in to this idea of a relatively narrow scale of important qualities, typically tested by educational achievement. And we're also um, encouraging the view that all that matters is those who actually succeed through these through the competition, uh, the meritorious, uh, who are then regarded as genuine meritorious. Sorry, it's just that they are genuinely not just good at their jobs, but superior beings. So, but I think, I mean, I'm with Michael Young in this critique in 1958 that this this is a term intended satirically. And it's really extraordinary how it's been seized as as a positive description of the kind of world that we would like to live in, which is not, in my view, the world of equality that I would like to see us living towards.
1: And uh, our modern understanding of equality, again, is in the book, argue is sort of bound up with ideas of uh, violence, colonialism, slavery, that part of history of, 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 of Europe. How is this idea of equality bound up with those ideas?
0: Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, historically, um, I mean, I think we, I mean, there's very much a sense that uh, when we talk about equality today, that we're talking, I mean, there've been ways in which people have talked about equality, you know, through the millennia, right? Lots of different versions of equality. But there's a notion that there's a modern idea of equality, which is born broadly in the West, in Europe, in the uh, round about 17th century, lots of kind people talking about uh, in the state of nature we are all equals. We are born create. You know, in the American Declaration of Independence, we take it as a self-evident truth that uh, you know all men are, um, are born equal, um, and that's that's seen as the kind of the characteristic of the kind of the modern idea of equality. And then through the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century. as I say, this sense that people are talking more and more about equality, demanding more and more from equality. This is exactly the time in which you have uh, the Spanish conquest of the Americas and the Caribbean, uh, the development of the Atlantic slave slave trade, the growth of the huge British empire through the 19th century in India, in Africa. So, all the violence of the slave trade and colonialism absolutely coincides with this moment in which there's hugely increased talk about the equality of human beings, and you think, well, what's going on here? What's going on here? Is this is this just an oversight that people didn't make a connection between the equality that they were talking about and the gross denial of people's equality, in which you buy and sell people as if they are things. Well, um, obviously some people did point it out and there was a lot of critique from uh, anti-slavery and later anti-colonial activists. Um, but is it just that they didn't notice or is there some way, that's, that was my question, is there some way in which they're not just historically coincidental, but the growth of ideas of equality and this the violence of, and of And brutality of slavery and colonialism. And I think, well, my argument is that to the extent that there is more than just a, a historical coincidence, it's because of the importance of the ways in which nations of nature have entered into modern ideas of equality. So the focus is very much, it's not on any more on the idea that we're equal in the sight of God or or that kind of God regards us as equals. It's very much there's something about our nature as human beings that makes us equals, and of course that's a wonderfully liberating notion and a, a potentially very uh, egalitarian notion. But once you start talking about nature, you also you also focus in on natural differences, and this is the period in which you get the beginnings of kind of very strict racial classifications, racial taxonomies. It's the period in which People talk about much more talk about the the essential differences between men and women. I mean, this is something that grows up and gets stronger through the nineteenth, eighteenth, the nineteenth century, rather than decreasing. Um, so there's something about the kind of the use of nature, what we share in nature, as the justification for equality, that that provides an alibi. <laughs> for a focus on the natural differences that then justify the exclusion of full categories of people from this world of uh, world of equals. So so I think historically it's evident that they coincide. But I think in terms of the kind of the the nature of the particular notion of equality we've put to use, um there's also a reason that it, it's not accidental <laughs> that they that this that the violence and the brutality and the exclusion of people coincides with this increasing focus on
1: seeming focused on the equality of all humans. Uh, in your introduction, you also make a reference to scientific research that genetic scientific research or some biological scientific research that kind of perpetuate the idea that inequality is a natural condition. And sometimes they even make the case that human intelligence or intelligence, how they measure, it, is proportionate to where you come from, the people of different races. And uh, I have, I've known several people who do that kind of research, and they're really well-intentioned people, but they just stick to what they call scientific research. And I've talked to them, and they do agree that their results are based on generalization that they sometimes tend to ignore, uh, let's say, exceptions, and there are lots of exceptions to these scientific rules. But, and like I said, despite the fact that they are well-intentioned, but this is actually perpetuating that idea of inequality, or even justifying or ignoring these structural injustices that that generate these inequalities. So, what do you think of this, this new trend of scientific research that claims to have like those well, natural uh, origins of yeah. inequality?
0: I mean, it's a trend that is, of course, countered by all kinds of other scientific research which challenges it. And yeah. you know, so, you know, there's a huge amount published or, or on both sides and I find it deeply infuriating that we still have to these have these arguments. So it's it, I mean it seems to me that there's that there's it's not a, one doesn't have to deny that there are natural differences. I mean it would be very odd if we were all born into the world with exactly the same range of capacities, potentialities, and so on. One of my sons is uh, is an artist. He's a freelance photographer. The kind of things he does, I, I just I, I have to minimal artistic talent. Another of my sons, like well, the other of my sons, I don't have many of them. I my other son is someone who goes through life unruffled, untroubled by whatever disasters before him. Um, I can well believe that these are just characteristics that were in some sense natural, though, of course, to what extent they were developed, uh, increased, reduced by the circumstances of their lives. Who knows? So, not a problem to say that there are natural differences, but first of all, why do we think of natural differences as natural inequalities? I mean, it goes a bit back to what I was saying about meritocracy, that it's kind of the ways in which we we, we tend towards a very narrow uh, selection of the many qualities, potentialities, capacities that people have, selecting out some of those that we regard as the kind of the um, the ones that demonstrate superiority, uh, without recognizing the kind of this huge range of human capabilities and human possibilities. So that's one thing. That the way in which people kind of move so fast from the idea that there might be natural differences to the notion that these are their inequalities as opposed to we make them inequalities. But secondly, um, yes, the literature in relation to gender, um, half the human race are women and the other half are men. I mean, it's such a generalization. Um, race, I think, and I think many people argue this is, is a kind of very much an invented category, which kind of imposes on what we can you know, we can sort of identify as uh, differences in physiognomy or in skin color, and then imposes on that assumptions about intelligence, about uh, personality, about attitudes to life, in ways that that came into being again, land of outer time at which you've got the development of uh, the ins- the development of uh, the empires, the of the last. Uh, uh, four or five hundred years. Um, so uh I, I think the uh the, the, the scientists continue to debate. Um what I would say is establishing um natural differences does not mean natural inequality, but also the attempt to kind of produce generalizations on the state of either gender or on some sort of constructed notion of what race is. I mean it's there uh, are I have very little um confidence in any of that research Though so i do i do read some of it and i do read some of the counter research that is produced and uh you know good luck to the people who are carrying on debunking the science and oh. are, um, yeah um
1: yeah yeah and as you mentioned it's kind of sad that we're still having those arguments we, you, you still need a lot of scientists to yeah, come women um... yeah, yeah. yeah yeah, um, yeah. Uh, let's talk about a non-foundational account of equality. That was a new concept to me. What, what do you mean by a non-foundational account of yeah. equality? Yeah.
0: So, th- so this is very much a kind of um, a term that that comes up within the political theory, political philosophy literature. So, there's a kind of sense that um, it's it's part of people thinking of uh, a kind of uh, um, a post uh, a, a sort of post-religion uh, or post-metaphysics. Way of thinking about equality, so you can't you can't sort of justify uh, the equality of all humans by reference to something that uh, God tells us, right? Or you can't justify it by reference to a kind of notion, you know, as in some versions of Christianity that you know, humans have souls and that that's what makes us equal. Um, what what people have tried to do in the kind of the more secular ways of thinking about equality is to say things like well human beings think about think about the kind of ways in which human rights uh, are talked about people talk about all oh, humans have this uh, shared dignity right it's because of our shared dignity as human beings that we all have these these human rights or people say it's because human beings unlike non-human animals have rationality and because of that rationality, uh, they all should be regarded as, in some important sense, equals. These are these are searching for a foundation or a justification for treating people as equals. And a, a key, I mean, a, what I what I, I think once you start searching for this kind of thing, this characteristic of human beings that justifies um, treating them as equals. You're setting a test. You're saying, this is why it's because of this quality X that you have, that I'm going to regard you as my equal. And if evidence emerged, perhaps because of the scientific researchers, that you didn't have this quality X, uh, then I'm terribly sorry, but I can't any longer regard you as an equal. The point being that, you know, almost whatever you offer is your justification, it's kind of it's it's creating a condition which not everyone may meet, and in, historically, as we know, not everyone did meet. Women were excluded because they weren't deemed to have sufficient rationality. Um, uh, Africans were excluded because they were deemed as closer to animals in their nature than to human beings. They were seen as having this characteristic of animality. Um, so that the, the characteristics become the basis for exclusion. So what what I think we need to look for, and it's there in a lot of the. It's not as though it's something nobody's ever done. It's there in a lot of the politics of equality, and in a lot of the movements, and a lot of the language. It's is a way of thinking about equality that just cuts free of these kinds of attempts to give a grounds a justification. I don't mean not giving reasons. I mean if you want to kind of talk to people about well, why should you regard others as equals? Of course, you'll give all kinds of reasons about why you should. Um, But the reason should not be based on there is something about these human beings, some grounds, which is the justification. Because as soon as you move down that line of argument, you create far too much space for identifying some humans as not qualifying, not fitting those kinds of grounds. I mean, actually, one of the ways, I mean, it's worth saying one of the ways in which this figures in contemporary discourse is um, it's almost as though we've... We've moved from the idea of who is, is or isn't a human being, right uh, to the idea of who is or isn't a good human being. And I'm thinking of things like the ways in which um, in both America and my own country, that prisoners are denied the right to vote. Um, and in America, as we know, in some states, you know prisoners even after they've served their sentence and they've released from prison. Uh, Can be denied the right to vote for the rest of their rest of their lives. It seems to me what's going on there is that people are saying you have to be more than human to qualify uh, to be treated as an equal in our society. You have to be a good human, right? And if you if you become a bad human, we'll not only lock you up. You know, well, you know, you know, the idea of punishing people for crimes that they've committed. That that's a you know that that's kind of fair enough. Uh, but that we will no longer treat you as one of the, we will no longer allow you, one of the most fundamental uh, expressions of our seeming equality, which is the right to vote. So it's as though uh, you now disqualify yourself because you you don't fit the image of a good human. All of these things are like setting up conditions which you have to you have to kind of meet tests that you have to pass in order to qualify for it. equality. Should not be something we qualify for. It should be something that, you know, we just commit ourselves to, that we, you know, we commit ourselves to the principle that uh, all humans are equals.
1: And as as you rightly mentioned, so defining humanity, or sorry, equality based on some shared human conditions could prepare the ground for some exclusions, as you mentioned by the example. The other extreme, so the extreme of that could also be the rise of nationalism or ethnocentrism. Uh, As well. Am am I right to assume that?
0: Yes. I mean, that's in a way that's a kind of, um, I mean, the way people will talk about that is that they'll talk about it as, uh, well, it's, uh, I mean, nationalism is defining people's uh, rights or access to equality on the basis of whether they belong or not to the nation, right? So it's like setting aside the question of whether you're a human being, it's whether or not you're a kind of, it's a very narrow condition that's being set there. It's not just, are you a human being, but are you a member of the nation? And then as we know, the nation is very often defined in uh, in, in in ethnic terms, in cultural terms, in religious terms, which then exclude large numbers of people who had thought of themselves as members of the nation, uh, but turn out not to be accepted as such. So so nationalism, yes, is very much uh, setting conditions and often very tight uh, con- exclusionary conditions on who does or doesn't count as uh, as a member of the nation. Um, that I think is is absolutely clear and obvious. I think it's it's a, it's a kind of a slightly more uh, challenging argument to say that people are also doing that when they talk about. Uh, the equality of humans. But it it seems to me it's the same kind of process, that you're you're defining those who count as equals or who are entitled to the rights and the possibilities that we offer people by reference to whether they have this particular characteristic. And increasingly, in nationalist movements in the 20th and 21st century, the characteristic has included a particular notion of ethnic identity. Uh, rather than just whether you're a citizen, whether you have you know citizenship rights within the country. Yeah. And that's uh and that's already, yeah, that's and then that, that plays out in extraordinary um extraordinarily powerful mm. anti immigration movements in contemporary Europe um. which are very considerable worry. Which is not to say, I mean, you know, you can you can uh you can make an argument for the immigration control, um, you know, but the anti-immigration sentiment is much more of the form of immigrants are like they're totally different beings from the citizens of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not as though, and there is that kind of um, exclusion of them from even the category uh, that is uh, that is so deeply troubling.
1: Um, and what do you mean when you talk about equality as a political commitment? yeah I mean that that's um,
0: so that relates to the kind of the critique that I'm making of foundational requirements of equality, because I, I mean there's a lot of work in contemporary political philosophy which is which is trying to work out, well, you know, okay, so we we say that we're all in some sense, basic equals. What is the basis for this? What is the justification for this? What are the grounds for this? What is it about us that makes us equals, and so on? So there is all this philosophical search for the grounds, and you know, and as as I've said, I think that kind of search always meets with exclusionary possibilities, and I think one should move from that to something which is much more just acknowledging that equality is—it's not the conclusion of either a philosophical argument or an empirical investigation into you know what kind of human being you are whether you're the same kind of human being as I am it's not the result of philosophical inquiry or scientific investigation it's it's a political commitment and it's something that has become incre- i mean this is where i do think this progress has become increasingly powerful as a demand and a claim over the centuries, that people insist on their equality, they claim their equality, they commit themselves to equality. But we need to recognise that it is a political commitment rather than you start something you can prove. You can't prove that we're equals. Um, you can't uh, prove that either by scientific research or by philosophy. But you can make a commitment to this, and I think that. That's what political movements calling for equality do. They commit themselves to equality as a a sort of central value that they are pursuing. Um, And I think that that's that's a much more healthy way to understand what we're doing when we talk about equality than to think of it as something that we're trying to establish, we're trying to justify, we're trying to prove. In which case, we do get rather vulnerable to some of the scientific research that you've been talking about. You know, Because if you're put it into the realm of proof and then somebody comes along and says we've discovered that you know this group doesn't have characteristic x but that group does uh you're you're very vulnerable to that but
1: Mm. you shouldn't be vulnerable to that because equality is a political commitment Mm. and and to bring about that political commitment do we need any socioeconomic conditions to enable that commitment to equality
0: yeah absolutely and that i that i suppose goes back to um Some of what I was uh, saying at the at the beginning about the huge increase in inequalities. I mean, it's a strange time because you could say worldwide, over the last century, there's been a a reduction in inequalities between countries. Um, I mean, one thinks of China, for example, and the uh, the kind of the transformation of the lives of poor Chinese over the last century. That's just one many examples. So it's a time worldwide of reducing inequalities between countries, but in most cases, hugely increasing inequalities within countries. And I think that I think that kind of material inequality um, makes it incredibly difficult for people to think of one another as equals. I mean, you asked me earlier about what it is that. Uh, what it is that kind of, in a way, stops people from seeing others as equals. And I do think that kind of the the scale of material inequalities is one part of that. You know, it's not just that we have a particular conception of equality, but I think it's the wrong conception. Uh, if you if you live in a world where the, the level of material inequalities is such that we live more or less separate from one another, that we can live sort of almost segregated lives in which uh, the rich... Uh, have no idea about the kind of the lives of the poor. They see them as kind of just alien beings, just actually a source of, of both contempt and fear. Um, the the kind of the, the poor have equally no uh, no knowledge other than possibly some a wish that they could share some of the uh, the resources of the of the rich. It's it's not a world that generates uh, the. That, that sustains the capacity to really think of one another as be as people like oneself, right? Um, so, so I do think that um, one of the ways in which we move further and further away from the possibility of really thinking of one another as equals is that we live in a world where the material, the scale of the material inequalities, actually makes us live in separate worlds. And so that so that's kind of. That's that's one thing that I'd say. I mean, the other thing is just that, you know, all of the achievements that we've made in terms of political equality or legal equality or civil equality are continually undermined by the material inequality. So, um well, the right to vote obviously, we know that doesn't deliver anything like an equality of influence in politics because you know the people there, you know, those who have uh Wealth, contacts, influence, are able to have much more influence on public policy than those who simply cast their vote in the ballot box every four or five years. Uh, We also, things like equality before the law, uh, we all have the equal right to take our case to the law courts, but if you can afford the most skilled barrister in town to represent you, your chances of winning your case. Are, of course, immeasurably better than if you either have to just represent yourself or you have to do with the services of an incredibly overworked uh, legal aid uh, uh, lawyer who barely has time to read your case before going and representing you. So, material inequalities in some ways make a mockery even of the political and legal equalities that we've achieved. But I think they also. Hugely eat into our capacity to think of
1: one another as beings like ourselves. Um, there is another question I'm really interested to know more about, and I have I've been interviewing different people, and I when when the timing is right, when the topic is right, I usually pose this question, and that's about identity politics. So there are two groups of people who dismiss identity politics. One of them is, of course, right wingers or conservatives who completely deny any kind of the existence of any inequality and justice. So that's a different case. We don't want to talk about it. But on the other hand, there are a lot of people, liberals or those on the left, would dismiss. but mainly those on the left would dismiss class uh, politics, identity politics, are Because they, not that they are against uh, to say, uh, racial or you know, gender inequality, but they, they said that to bring about equality, we need to focus on economic means. And they are sometimes labeled class reductionists. So do, do you believe that equality is only achieved through these economic avenues and we or should we dismiss identity politics and focus on the economic aspects to bring about that political commitment that you've been talking about?
0: So I, I very much resist, and I have, I think throughout my writing, uh, throughout my career, uh, resisted the idea that uh, there's identity politics on the one side and there's questions of material inequality or class politics on the other side. So uh, I, I come at this, you know, through um, through my feminism and uh, feminists from very early on were uh, rejecting the idea that somehow uh, through mobilising around issues to do with gender uh, that we were undercutting... Um, the more important class politics of our um, non-feminist socialist comrades—that um, uh, that 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 kind of opposition has 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 kind of stymied so much politics over so many decades—and um, indeed is uh, is still uh, very much uh, creating problems. It's also, um, I think, it, it, it's it's kind of part and parcel of what I've been trying to uh, say about the kind of the current ways of kind of thinking about equality at the moment and this this compla this complacency that I started with, the complacency about we we already live in a world where it's taken for granted that we're all in some important sense equal. I think those who want to resist, reject identity politics, a lot of them actually buy into that complacency. Um they think, you know, what what are women going on about? Uh you know we already live in a world in which men and women are finally, they're recognized as equals. We realized they had a hard time for many centuries and that they were denied the vote and they were denied the right to own property and denied this and the other. But we're way beyond that. Men and women are, are kind of regarded as equals now. So all this talk about identity politics is just distracting us from what is the much more important question, which is the material inequalities. And it's kind of part of that extraordinary that assumption that we've already arrived, that we've solved the identity problems—that right—we don't any longer differentiate on the basis of gender. We don't differentiate on the basis of race. Uh, we don't—we don't treat people differently. Uh, all the only problem that remains to us is that we have material inequalities. Seems to be so far from the reality that these—you know—the uh, the identity, the so-called identity issues. I don't like the language of identity politics very much but the reality of it which is to say that it's the ways in which whether or not we are regarded as inferiors that, that there are ways in which people are regarded as and treated as inferiors which have often coincide with them being materially disadvantaged but they're not entirely identical to that um and that that's something that we need to continue to take account of so so I'm. Um, I mean, I think some. You know, you could always come up with some aspects of identity politics which are. Which do seem to have, uh, in a way, lost. Uh, oh. Lost contact with the material real- realities of the world sometimes. Uh, but but the, fundamentally, um, these are all part of the inequalities that we are. Uh, that we are facing, and you cannot, you know, realistically claim that you know we've sorted out all the things that people obsessed with identity politics are worried about, and and can therefore happily just concentrate on the material. Uh, these these that kind of that dichotomy, to my mind, just doesn't work, and it's something that you know, I mean, in many of my writings, I have uh, tried to tried to challenge. So no, I wouldn't dismiss identity Mm -hmm. politics.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, actually one of the colleagues from Columbia University that I was talking to about a year ago, I posed the same question, um, Bernard Harcourt, So uh, I I posed the same question and he he more or less gave me the same answer as you did. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested also to know more about a relational account of equality that you talk about in the book. What is a relational account of equality?
0: I mean, this again is a kind of is a reference particularly to debates uh within the political theory, political philosophy. So th- there was a huge amount of the work on equality among political philosophers for many years, through the 18s, nineties, what have you, uh, was focused on okay, we want equality, but equality of what? What exactly are we trying to equalize? Are we trying to equalize resources so that everyone has, you know, exactly the same parcel of resources are we trying to equalize opportunities so everyone has starts with the same as everyone starts in the same starting place are we trying to equalize people's welfare so that those who have greater needs perhaps because of disability actually are entitled to more resources huge about endless debates about exactly you know what do we mean by equality? Uh, how do we distribute things to ensure that we get equality? And this has been very profoundly uh, criticized by uh, a number of uh, theorists, including uh, Elizabeth Anderson, uh, Samuel Scheffer, John Wolfe, um, who tend to be described now as relational egalitarian, who kind of pull us back to a huge amount of what people care about when they care about equality. Is whether is is whether people relate to them as equals, um, and that if you just focus on these kind of questions about exactly what things are we distributing, and in what kinds of proportions, you're actually losing sight of the uh, the real thing that people get get. People feel that they're challenging when they're challenging inequality. They're challenging hierarchy. They're challenging domination. They're challenging oppression. They're not just challenging an unequal distribution of resources, though that's clearly part of it. Um, they're actually challenging that people are treating them as inferiors. And maybe they're treating them as inferiors because they have lesser uh resources, which is goes back to the point about you can't separate these two out as if they're separate matters. But that, you know, it's how people relate to one another and what it means to relate as equals. That is crucial. I mean, I'm a bit critical of some of the uh, so-called relational egalitarians because I think I, I think in their case some of them do move a bit far away from thinking about the uh, the challenge of material inequalities and move in the direction of saying as long as we all have enough to be regarded as um, full citizens, then that's all we need. And I think. Huge material inequalities matter much more than that. but but generally, the idea is that uh, instead of just thinking of equality as a kind of matter of distributing things more fairly, think about what is the society in which people actually relate to one and what we're as equals? What would we need to maintain,
1: create, and maintain? One? And as a final question, um, which one do you think is more important to define? Equality and justice, or to identify different forms of injustice or inequality.
0: I'm glad you asked that because very often when people talk to me about the book, I mean, it's it's, I consider it an important part of the argument. Mm. People very often don't focus on that part of the argument. I think the, um, I mean, perhaps just to go to go back a step, um, and it relates to some of the debates within feminism. Um, I mean, I I have had through my life rather a kind of fix a clear idea of what I think equality between the sexes involves. And for me, it basically would involve there no longer be any presumption that because you're a man, you do certain sorts of things, because I'm a woman, I do other sorts of things. So there'd no longer be any presumption that women typically do the caring work and men typically become engineers or whatever it might be. But, that in that sense, men and women would, would, in a sense, they'd become interchangeable, that there would be no gender hierarchy, there'd be no gender division of labor. And that's been my image of what equality between the sexes involves. But I'm very well aware that there are feminist movements throughout the world that are totally committed to what they see as gender equality and the rights of women. But they don't think that having some kind of gender division of labor is such a problem right they think that you can have men assuming responsibility for particular kinds of activities women being more responsible perhaps for some of the activities within the home as long as women are recognized as equals and have equal kind of political authority and control over their incomes um you know then the fact that they that there's a typical uh, woman's job and a typical man's job is not a problem and I've come over the years to see my notion of gender equality is just a bit too de- defined and fixed I mean I haven't particularly changed my own view but I think the crucial thing is not to convince everyone that this is what gender equality means but to actually tackle the areas where there is gender inequality gender oppression gender domination where it's like easier it but to, you know for us all to agree on what are instances of those than for us to agree on what should be the end state. And I think that argument, which for me evolved out of thinking about issues to do with feminist debates, is a more general argument that uh, the crucial thing is not to get caught up in endless debates about exactly what does it mean to treat people as equals. But to start from, this is clearly a case of inequality. This is clearly a case in which some people are asserting their superiority over others. Let's see what we can do about that. So uh, yeah, so I'm glad you asked them about that because that I see it's quite an important part of my
1: argument. Um, and, and as a last question, I always ask this, is there any other project you are currently working on? Because some of the books that you previously published were also also had to do with the idea of multiculturalism, equality. So I can see this threat. Is there another project you're working on or thinking about writing a book anytime soon? Uh,
0: it's it's been slightly a problem for me that as I said at the beginning, I kind of see this book as in some ways a culmination of many of the things I've been thinking about. So it's brought me temporarily, I hope, to a bit of a standstill. And I'm not actually sure exactly what I want to move on to next. So they're very sort of smallish projects at the time. Uh, that I'm working on or, or engaged with, but I don't yet have a big new kind of compelling project. But I'm sure that when I do, it will again be to do with inequality. and inequality.
1: Professor Anne Phillips, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network and sharing your thoughts about this wonderful book. Thank you.
0: Thank you for the interview.